0: let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the love, the richness of your love that you've poured out for our benefit, God, for the chance for us to fixate on this incredible hope that we have in Jesus. And we ask, God, that as we prepare to open your word, that's exactly what we would do, to recognize not just what has been done, but what you still do. And so, Father, send your Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is great to see you all uh, this morning. Uh, I hope you all are doing well at home. Hope you've had a great weekend so far. Um, I want to begin today with just a couple of comments uh, about some of the interactions we've had with you guys this past week. If you were able to tune into to our uh, weekly prayer service on Wednesday night, Uh, you were able to see a couple important updates that we were sharing with you all and and some opportunities to to hear from you guys in in terms of the new i guess guidelines that we heard from our governor last week and uh, many of you were able to see that uh, according to that press conference houses of worship places of worship were allowed to begin to open their doors again Um, but one of the things that we acknowledged was just because we're uh, able to do something doesn't mean we necessarily should do something. And we really wanted to engage in that conversation with you all as a church family. So we, we read through the guidelines and we put together kind of a picture of what worship would look like based on these new limitations and, and this new approach. And we, we kind of created a picture of, of how that would be facilitated. And then we just asked you all, uh, are you comfortable with this, or do you want to wait? That was that was the essence of the survey, and I want to thank you all for responding. We had a, a tremendous amount of response. The majority of our church um, was able to participate in that survey, and that was very helpful because it's a way for us to continue to, to dialogue, and and I'm grateful for that. And and essentially the the results were uh, that more than seventy five percent of those that participated in that survey said, you know what, it's just too soon. We're not comfortable with was starting up this way right now. Um, but at the same time, 75% of you said, you will, you will feel comfortable uh, gathering in that way, gathering in a, in a measured way at a later date. And so that's, that's really kind of what we anticipated the results to be, it's, it's more or less how we felt, but it was great to get that confirmation and affirmation from you all. And, and we were able to get even more understanding of how many of you are coming from a, a background of being maybe in that more vulnerable uh, demographic of population and so I, I share all that to tell you that uh, even though we can consider uh, what it looks like to reconvene in a limited capacity uh, we we feel it's wise based on our conversation with you we're just gonna wait and and we're gonna kind of see how things continue to unfold we know that uh, Texas uh, officials are still gonna be monitoring the situation they're gonna continue to to see how uh, society reacts and, and they'll provide incremental check-ins and so we will as well I do not have a date for you in mind this morning where i can say but hey on this date we're going to start again um all i can tell you is that we're going to maintain a conversation and and we will continue to inquire of your feedback and, and tell you where we're leaning and we'll continue to make plans moving forward so i'll, I'll share more details on that it'll be part of our uh, e-news uh tomorrow and in, in the regular weekly email so be looking for more information if you have any questions you can by all means reach out to us now that being said um i do uh, hope that you all are continuing to settle into this new norm and i'm sure much like uh, myself you're experiencing a lot of firsts right i mean the the fact that we are even considering doing worship in that capacity is many of us have been talking about on staff we're like man this is the first time we've even really had to think about doing worship with limited audiences and all these different dynamics and and that's kind of just true of this pandemic it's creating a lot of first-time experiences we had one of those as a family last night when we actually had a prom party on our front lawn. okay, Uh, it was really interesting. So one of the things the young families in our neighborhood have done is we've tried to mix it up from week to week and have like a snow cone truck or an ice cream truck come by the neighborhood so that the kids can come out and we maintain, you know, safe distances from each other. But it's a way for us to still do something fun and interactive within the neighborhood. So as our families turn to do this and so we had an ice cream truck come to our house last night and we had you know uh, publicized it through our Facebook neighborhood group page and uh, yesterday morning as Jennifer was out with some of the kids in the front yard a neighbor walks by and she was talking about how she and her husband were planning on coming and that she planned on bringing their youngest daughter who was a senior in high school and she said yeah we'll be there she goes but it is kind of odd because this was supposed to be Katie's prom and so Katie wants to have fun with it and she's going to wear her prom dress and man that one comment just ignited a whole level of creativity in my wife's mind and we we turned this whole ice cream truck uh celebration into a prom party we had signs we had decoration we had we had uh, music going on but one of the most important parts was the fashion uh, we had our kids dress up in in nice clothes we, we told our neighbors and so a lot of people showed up in formals uh and and some of us kind of had fun with it uh, for example me and at least one of my other friends in the neighborhood we we kind of went halfway with it we we did the button-up shirt and the tie but then still wore shorts and sandals and we did it for a couple of reasons one because it was hot and that just made more sense but then number two that seems to be a common fashion statement in today's pandemic right it's kind of a new trend because so many people are just doing zoom calls and you only really see from the chest up that a lot of people stay comfortable everywhere else and so it was it was really funny to to think about what that interaction in our neighborhood must have looked like to anybody driving by, right? To see all those random fashion statements while people are getting ice cream from an ice cream truck. Uh, but that's really kind of uh, indicative of, of these many firsts, right, not just the prom party, but we're, we're learning new ways of fashion, right? Even the pandemic is impacting our fashion sense. In fact, I started thinking about that last night and I, I looked online for kind of common trends that we can expect. And I came across this article in Elle magazine, I guess, on, online. And sure enough, front and center, one of their main focal points, you can probably guess it, was how fashion is going to influence what? Face masks. Right? So I have this picture that, that I, uh, we have here that kind of shows you this trend of how they're going to try to make face masks fashionable and cool and popular and all these different things. And, and you see that. And it's not even just like the fact that we have to wear face masks now, but even the fact that we have different public figures that we're, we're always seeing, right? We have these almost daily press conferences. And so we're constantly seeing uh, different doctors and different politicians. And uh, so the next article right there next to that one about face mask uh, focused in on this Dr. Burks, who we see. And we got a picture over here. And what was the comment about? But her scarves, right? I mean, and I made this comment to one of my friends just the other day. I was like, man, every, every press conference, she's got a different scarf. That, that lady must have like bajillions of scarves at home. And so <clears throat> we're seeing how this pandemic is influencing fashion statements. Uh, if you were to look into the Smith household, the fashion statement that, that we tend to make more often than not definitely comes from the pajama line. I mean, I think there's there's numerous days where all five of us have not made it out of our pajamas, right? I mean, we just stay in comfort because why, right? We, we're not going anywhere. Um, and so nobody is calling us <clears throat> asking for fashion advice, uh, not surprisingly so. And that's always been the case for me. I've never known much about fashion or trends, so to speak. I'm usually the guy that has to be made fun of on several occasions to even have the awareness that what I'm wearing is not trendy. And then I have another lag time to actually have to care that what I'm not wearing is trendy before I actually change. But I do remember the first time I ever really encountered how fashion trends can take off. I think I was in fourth or fifth grade and uh, I remember sandals were a big deal, and, and I really loved sandals because I'd never liked flip-flops, you know, the, the type that come between your toes. These were sandals that you could Velcro, and so they were, they were very popular at that time, and I loved them, and then I'll never forget one day I showed up uh, to school, and I can't remember who it was exactly, but one or two of my friends showed up, and they were wearing socks with sandals, and that just to me. It seemed, my mind was blown. I was like, that's just crazy. And so I was a fairly opinionated kid. I'm a fairly opinionated person. So I told them that. I was like, this is insane. You don't wear socks with sandals. And they didn't seem to, t- seem to take my advice too, too close to heart because they kept wearing them. And then sure enough, as the next few days and weeks unfolded, my mind was blown as more people started wearing socks with sandals. And I couldn't believe it. It's like this fashion trend just took off. And, and I felt like I was on an island surrounded by crazy people. Like it just didn't make sense to me. So I refused to give in, I didn't cave. And, and I just kept looking at these people, thinking to myself, what are you thinking? Right, like this is nuts. And, and that's really what happens with fashion, right? It's, it's this way of thinking. And it guarantees you that at some point in time, down the line, you're gonna look back on a photo, you're gonna look back on a movie, and you're gonna see what somebody thought was fashionable, and you're gonna go, what, what was that person thinking, right? Because fashion is this, this example, somewhat of a trivial example, that, that thinking leads to conduct. Right, so at some point, somebody goes, you know, what we're wearing right now is outdated, it's out of style, so I'm gonna think of something new. And then the trend kinda kicks off from there. And so we look to these setters, right? Somebody that's an influencer, so to speak, that we can model off of, or we try to be that person ourselves, and then the trend begins to follow. And it, and it shows us, very tangibly, that, that thinking leads to conduct right? It leads to an external manifestation of conduct. And, and so I share that story and all those examples with you this morning because it reminds me of a fundamental truth of the gospel, right? A shift in thinking is going to lead to a shift in conduct, right? That, that what we see in the gospel is that we don't look to someone else. We don't look to ourselves. We look to Christ. And when we look to Christ, it shifts the whole way in which we see the world, And that shift in in our thinking begins to change our conduct, and it has this external appearance to it. And so when we begin to see that transition, what we begin to discover is that it's not just us trying to find our own way and carve out our own identity, but finding our identity in Christ, right? And so what we wanna talk about today is to recognize how does Christ and our understanding of Christ shift our thinking and there in turn shift our conduct and so if you have your your bibles let's turn to ephesians chapter four <clears throat> so far as we've worked through this chapter you you've hit on these dominant themes or that we've hit on these dominant themes of unity of maturity being able to speak the truth and love is what we talked about last week and this week is a pretty critical part of the chapter because towards the end of the chapter and really <clears throat> for a lot of the rest of the letter we're going to see discussions about uh, ethics and, and behavior, conduct, right? And, and so these two paragraphs, these seven verses we're looking at today, really kind of serve as a foundational understanding to how we can pursue that conduct, how we can pursue some of those behaviors that Paul's gonna outline as being fairly important. And, and what we're gonna see kind of thematic to today's passage is this understanding of how a shift in thinking leads to a shift in conduct. And so if you have your Bibles, pick up with me <clears throat> in verse 17. It says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in the true righteousness and holiness. All right, so those two paragraphs are, are pretty remarkable. And uh, the, the theme that we can obviously see is this theme towards thinking, right? You see words like thinking and understanding. You see words like even attitudes of your mind, and how that contributes to uh, how you begin to live. And so Paul uses that theme of thinking, and he creates this contrast between the old self and the new self. And that's the contrast that we're going to use uh, really kind of as a focal point today's message. in today's message. And, and one of the first things that Paul points out is right that you should no longer live as you used to. So that word live connects us to the whole theme that Paul introduced in chapter 4 right? Conduct yourself in a manner, live in a manner that is worthy of the calling you've received. That's chapter four, verse one. And that word live means to walk around, right? It, it means to actually conduct yourself, the behavior that you have. And so what he's doing is he's drawing back to that, that thesis uh, that we found in, in the first verse of chapter four. And now he's saying, this is how you should approach this. Don't live this way anymore, no longer live the way the Gentiles do. And so Gentiles is just speaking to the, the wider population, the society around them, those that are outside of the body of Christ. And so it, this serves as a pretty important reminder for us, is that first and foremost, when we look at a passage like this, it should remind us of who we were, right? The way we used to live. And, and in so doing, it should create a sense of gratitude, but also humility in terms of, of a previous lifestyle that we have been rescued from. But because it says no longer live, implicit within that language is also not just that this is who you were, but this is who you could still be or who you could become, right? It's still a present danger. So it's not just you, you used to be this, but you still could be. So it's a word of caution, right? Don't fall back into this trap. Yet it also serves as a reminder of what the world around us is like, right? And that we have an opportunity to try to bring this truth to the world around us so that they too, Can can have a shift in thinking and a shift in conduct. So it's a very important fundamental statement there at the very beginning that that leads us to this description of old self versus new self. And so what do we find? Right? What what is the way that this old self is described? Well, the first two terms that I want to call to your attention is that he describes it as a futility in their thinking and that they had a darkened understanding. Right. So there's the words for thinking and understanding that we've already talked about, but Futility means nothingness, right? So essentially, this could be understood to be a, a good-for-nothing um, thinking, right? Your thoughts are really not good for anything. They amount to, to emptiness. Uh, and it's also paired with this darkened understanding, which literally means to have a darkened mind. So the picture that Paul is creating is, is that you have this fog around you, right? You're, you don't have this ability to see uh, beyond this. It, it makes me think of the way John's gospel uh, describes the incarnation, right? That the word was in the beginning, the word was God with God, word is God, and he comes and he takes on flesh and dwells among us. But in that discussion, you also have this imagery of light and darkness. But what does John say? That, that it was light and the darkness could not understand it, right? That's the darkened understanding. It's, it's this inability to even recognize who Jesus is, It's an inability to recognize what God has done. And so you have this feudal thinking, this darkened understanding, and it creates separation, right? And so fundamental to the old self and the new self is an understanding of our relationship with God. And here, the relationship in the old self is a relationship that is separated, right? This is that same idea that we saw in chapter two when Paul used the language of you were aliens, you were foreigners. It means to be cut off. It means to be, different, to be set aside, right? And so you were separated from God, and that becomes a very difficult thing to embrace, because that severed relationship is going to create all sorts of issues. It's going to create all sorts of problems, and that's what Paul begins to describe. Now, part of what I want us to see is how this sentence that speaks to separation explains how that separation occurs, right? Before we get to the, the conduct that manifests itself, let's understand first how that separation really takes place. He says that we are separated due to our ignorance. Okay, so, so ignorance means to not have information, right? And, and when you think about ignorance, I think we tend to react to ignorance in a, in a variety of different ways that is often contingent upon the context, right? So for example, if you and I were to enter into a conversation about biomedical engineering, Right, and it became pretty clear pretty early in the conversation that I didn't really know anything about the subject, that I was ignorant, I didn't have the information, though that would be uh, pretty clear, you'd probably be somewhat forgiving because your expectations are not for me to have a whole bunch of information when it comes to biomedical engineering. That's not my field, it's not my profession. And so in that context, that ignorance is tolerated, so to speak. But if we were to have a different conversation about something that's more widely known, um, and your expectations are different, say, for example, politics, and we start talking about it, and, and it comes uh, clear in that conversation that I don't even know who the candidates are who are running for president. Well, there you might be a little bit more frustrated, right, because that's common knowledge. You know, though you may not expect me to be an expert on politics, you would still hope for just a basic understanding and not to be completely ignorant of it, right, that, that you would at least think, man, I hope the voter is more or less informed, We know that's not always the case these days, but that is somewhat of an expectation. And as a result, in that setting, we're less tolerable of ignorance. And so the question then becomes, if that's how we see ignorance, then then how do we portray, or what are the reasonable expectations that we put on people that are seeking to understand God and the right way of living? Are we tolerable for those who are ignorant of some of these truths, or are we less tolerable, and what should we be, right? What does the scriptures teach? I tell you a common question that I used to hear all the time that I think kind of speaks to how we wrestle with this is as a former missions pastor, I used to always get the question, so what about the guy that lives on a deserted island and has never heard about Jesus? Does God condemn him, right? That's that's the question, right? He's he's ignorant of, of this gospel. He doesn't have the information. So how do we understand that? Is that fair, is that unfair? Well, part of what we need to do is go to the scriptures. And here's what the scriptures teach, right? Is that when it comes to an understanding of God and his expectation for a right way of living, we can, we can borrow from Romans 1, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna borrow a lot from Romans this morning. You don't have to turn there. I'm just gonna paraphrase it. We can, we can borrow from Romans 1 that says, look, from the very beginning, God has revealed his divine nature, his eternal qualities. He has put them on display throughout creation. Why? So that people are without excuse. Right, so his point is, you, you can go and take in the, the beauty of a sunset or the majesty of a mountain range. You can just look at creation and see and come up with a logical conclusion that there is a creator behind it. Now, you can go the avenue of science and you can explore theories and physics and how everything started, but, but whether you take science or you're just a casual observer and you begin to see the intricacies of creation and how it not only makes life possible, but how it sustains life, you are well within the realm of reason to draw a conclusion that maybe, just maybe, there's a creator behind creation, right? So so you don't have an excuse to say, well, I wasn't given the information to know that there is a creator. And not only that, Romans continues to not just understanding what we see through sunsets and mountain ranges, but what we feel within. Or you go back to that question of, you know, is it fair for somebody that has never heard the gospel to be condemned? That question implies an understanding or at least a desire to understand what is fair and unfair. And so the question becomes, well, where did you get that? Where did you get that notion? Where do you get this moral compass that, that drives you to find things that are fair or to determine what is right and wrong, good or evil, just or unjust? And yet we all seem to have it. We all seem to have this innate ability to look in on situations or ask certain questions and feel this prompting towards fairness. And so where does that come from? Well, according to Romans chapter two, it's a law that is written on our hearts that tells us we long for a right way of living. So my point is this, when it comes to trying to understand, uh, do we, are we ignorant of the fact that there is a God who desires us to live rightly, we cannot plead ignorance. It is not possible for us to stand before his throne and say, but I didn't know that you existed. I didn't know that you wanted me to live a certain way. We are without excuse. That's not the sort of ignorance that Paul is describing. right? The sort of ignorance that Paul is describing here is caused by a hardened heart. right? So so a hardening of the heart uh, basically means to be calloused. Right, that, that there is this stubbornness. It literally means to be unwilling to learn. Right, So, so now the description is what's happening is I, I can understand that it's a logical conclusion to see that there is a God, to see that he wants to have me live a certain way, but I refuse to try to seek him out. I refuse to try to understand what that way is. And so I've hardened my heart to that and that is what is creating this separation. Right, I am unwilling to to learn. That's a totally different type of ignorance. And none of us can just claim to say, well, we just didn't have the information. All of us has that prompting to pursue who he is and how he wants us to live. To do otherwise is to live according to a hardened heart. And so when we live according to a hardened heart, right, and we, we keep this way of thinking, right, that, that there's emptiness in our thoughts, we, we can't see the light. It's like, it's like Matt said earlier, with that passage in 1 Corinthians. For those, the cross, uh, for those who are perishing, it's foolishness, right? We have these darkened understand, we don't understand what it means, we don't seek it out. That separation creates a tremendous problem for how we live, right? It creates tremendous problems in our conduct. And so that's what Paul ends up describing. The first is that we begin to lose all sensitivity. So what he means by that is that we essentially uh, become callous to sin, right? We, We lose a sense of shame when it comes to sin. We, we stop caring. We, we don't feel pain for injustice. We don't feel pain for the, the mistakes or the, the failures in our own life, our own sin. And as a result, we eventually lose a sense of shame. We lose all sensitivity. Again, barring from Romans, this creates this similar picture in Romans chapter 1, where Paul describes it there as, even though they knew that those who did such things deserved death, not only did they continue to do them, but they also approved of those who practice them. That is a terrifying verse because it it paints a picture uh, that people can get to a place where we say, I know this is wrong and I don't care and I'm going to still do it even though I know it's wrong. I'm going to still do it and not only am I going to still do it, I'm actually going to encourage and approve of others doing this as well and we get this picture that society can arrive at a point where we don't just go a, a, a way of destruction. We don't just go towards immorality but we actually begin to celebrate it we actually begin to champion it. We begin to actually think it's right and it's good. That is darkened understanding, right? There is There are numerous examples of how we can see society standing up and championing a voice of immorality, of poor conduct, and encouraging others to do so as well. That's because we've lost sensitivity. So one of the questions you need to ask yourself this morning is have you lost that sensitivity, right? Does, does sin still bother you, right? Or have you become kind of, callous to it, right? Is it not just the sin in your life, right, which hopefully that still bothers you, those mistakes, the, the anger issue, the lust issue, the, the greed issue, the gossip issue. Hopefully those things still gnaw at you to a point that you feel shame and you desire something to be different. But not just the personal issues, but, but sin in the world. Man, are we still grieved and ashamed of what humanity can be guilty of? right? We must never lose that sort of sensitivity. When we do, what the scriptures describe here, and again in Romans, is that we're given over, right? We give ourselves over to a certain lifestyle. In Romans 1, it says, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And so this is the same word that we have at Jesus's betrayal, right? Judas handed him over to, to the authorities. And so when you see that, it's this really powerful picture of us being given in or being handed over to our own impulses and our own devices, to our own destructive way of thinking. Right, so, so think of it this way. I always think about a parent and a child. A parent's job is to help teach a child what they should do, right, and how they should live. And, and a lot of times, a child thinks they know what they should do and how they should live, and they claim and clamor for that independence. But a parent's job is not to give them over to that, not to hand them over to their own desires. We're there to try to instruct them. Because if you hand them over to their desires, They're gonna eat sugar all day, watch TV all day, go play out in the street without looking directions, right? They're they're gonna engage in behavior that is incredibly hurtful and harmful, right? And so that's what happens, is when we begin to surrender to this futile way of thinking, this darkened understanding, we lose sensitivity, and we're handed over to a whole different level of conduct that is not good. And that conduct is described here in this passage as sensuality, as impurity, and greed. Right? All, all words that more or less kind of point to the same message. It, it's a surprisingly short list for Paul when he typically can go off on a tangent and go through all different types of, of lists. So what he says here is this idea of sensuality is extreme immorality, right? It, it's, it's off the charts sort of perversion. Impurity is, is filth, it's uncleanness. Greed to me is a really powerful one because what it suggests is that you'll go to any lengths to gratify your own desires, even at the expense of somebody else, right? That that your impulse is to to satisfy your own wants, your own needs, even to the detriment of others you're willing to go and pursue. And so all of a sudden, this this destructive way of thinking leads to this sort of conduct. And so, so Paul describes all this. This is the old self. And in that next paragraph, he says, this is not what you were taught. I love that right he says you you were told to put this old self off right so to so to take off that to put off literally means to shed as a garment right to, to literally set it aside and throw it away so what you were taught was to take this old way of living this old self and throw it away to, to disrobe from it literally and so what that teaches us is an essence of the gospel right if you were ever taught a gospel." that didn't speak in some way of repentance, of putting off the old self, then you didn't hear the gospel, right? You you can't just have grace and love and mercy without repentance, it doesn't work that way. Yes, God accepts you exactly for who you are and receives you for exactly who you are, but then he wants transformation. He wants you to walk away from that old way of life. And so if you are in the mindset that you can have Jesus and also have the old self, that is not the gospel, right? It has to include this turning away, taking off this old self. And when we do that, what happens? There's a first, a shift in thinking. Right? That's what Paul points to. He goes, you need to be made new in your attitudes and in your mind, right? And so that, that being made new is this idea of renewal, Right? We see this over and over again in the gospel. We see it again, to borrow from Romans, Romans chapter 12. What does Paul say there? Don't be conformed to the patterns of the world. Right? Don't live as Gentiles do. Rather, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you can test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Right? He's saying the same thing. You have to shift your thinking. You have to change your attitude. You have to, you have to think differently differently. And when you do, you are renewed, you are transformed, and now you're able to see what God's will is for your life, right? And with that shift in thinking, what do you do? He says, once you've been made new in your mind, you put on the new self because you can then begin to live like God in righteousness and in holiness. So there's the the juxtaposition. There's the contrast. Over here, we have a life that's filled with greed and sensuality and impurities. And over here, we have a life that's like God, right? One that aspires to be holy because he is holy. A a life that desires righteousness, that desires right ways of living, right? That's the sort of conduct that we need to begin to pursue, right? That's the sort of manifestations that should be evident in our life. Now, here's what I love about this right, as soon as we begin to think about that contrast, I think many of us can consider this and see the simplicity of it, see the, the logic behind it, but also probably confess, man, that's, that's easier said than done, right? That, that's hard to walk away from old self. That's, that's difficult to live a life that is like God, that is righteous, that is holy. How, how is that possible? How do we do that? And that's what I love about that phrase, put on the new self, right? So it's, again, cloth, right? It's it's that same sort of imagery that Paul is using here. But here's what I love about it. The word new, in that particular phrase, new self, is not new in time. It's new in nature, right? So think about the difference, right? So when it comes to fashion, a lot of times we embrace something that's new because it's new in time, right? That's why we use words like, oh, those, those, Trends are outdated, they're out of style. That's why we can even go and look at certain trends through the decades, and this is what people wore in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, right? It's, it's about time. Things become new because it's a new time. That's not what's being, taken, being emphasized here, right? So this is not Paul saying, hey, here's a new philosophy, right, here's new teaching, here's new instruction, this is new time, something you've never heard before. This is new in nature. This this is The old is gone. This is new in essence, new in identity, new in the very essence of who you are. This is a fundamental truth of the gospel that we are now new creations in Christ Jesus, right? The gospel points to the fact that God is always making things new. We hope for a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. We are called together as the church in a new humanity. And now Paul is saying, put on a new self. And so as a result, the picture that Paul is creating here that is so powerful is this image of what has been done for us in Christ Jesus. And so the progression through this passage kind of creates this tension, right? That, that the shift in thinking and the shift in conduct is in fact a responsibility of the believer, right? That there is a desire, there is an impulse, there is something that we are responsible for. But it is intersecting with the divine will of God right, the divine initiative, this this plan of what he has done through Christ Jesus. And so the divine initiative and our human responsibility go hand in hand. Essentially, what Paul is trying to, to bring to the surface here is to say, it is not just what is done by you, it is what has been done for you. You are a new creation. Put on the new self. And so how do we do that, church? What does that look like? Where Paul's answer is right there in the middle of this contrast, right there in the middle of this discussion when he says, this is not how you were taught when you learned about Jesus Christ. Now, that's how we say it in the English. You know what it reads in the Greek? When you learned Christ, right? It's not just, hey, hey, I heard about him. And I've got more information about him now. I know the story. I know a little bit more details. This is actual learning Jesus. This is the sort of learning that is not just head knowledge and information. This is a way of living. This is a way of discipleship. And so the point is, you wanna figure out how to live this way? Learn Christ. Follow Christ. Press in to him. He is the model. He is the example. This is not by your strength, but by his story. That's how you begin to to unleash this within you, the fundamental shift in thinking all centers around what you see and who you see Jesus to be, right? The truth that has been taught is that this Jesus of Nazareth is in fact Messiah. He is in fact Savior. He is in fact accredited by God through miracle signs and wonders to be known as Lord. And so that becomes the shift in thinking. Do you see Jesus as Lord of your life? Have you learned what it means to follow him and to surrender to him as Lord in every capacity? When we shift with that sort of thinking and the cross is no longer foolishness, but it becomes the power of God, that shift in thinking creates a shift in conduct. And so the answer is not try harder, do better, clean yourself up, The answer is learn Christ, press into him and to surrender to him. And then you begin to see that he is a redeemer. We begin to be swept away in his amazing grace, the the joy, the peace, the love that he extends to us. We find this hope of all things being made new and to him we wholly bind ourselves in those moments. We discover that even when we go through hardship and we have to walk through those Darkened valleys. He is like the mighty shepherd that leads us through, that we can have an assurance that, that He has given His life. He has shed His blood for our pardon, for our forgiveness. He has overthrown the grave. And as a result of that sort of power, the chains of sin, the, the, the chains of, of a wrong way of living, all those things have been broken. And now we have the chance to put on this new self and seeing that we are free we have a chance to truly live a life that knows that day by day, we are being renewed until he leads us home. And when he leads us home, we are gonna stand before his throne and sing with joyful praise all the glory that he deserves. And in that song, church, you know what that song is going to declare? Not credit for ourselves, not credit for others. We're gonna be able to stand in unison and say, not I, but Christ in me. That's how this all begins to happen, that shift in thinking to see Jesus as Lord that shifts in conduct, not that we get the glory, but that he gets the glory. And so let's join together and make that an important part of our convictions as we go through this life, to shift our thinking so that we can have a shift in conduct, that we would learn Christ and learn who he is in each and every one of us. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, even in the midst of of technical difficulties. And and I know that this likely created um, challenges at home and distractions along the way, but your word is greater and your word is true no matter how it's proclaimed, no matter how it's taught. And so I pray that for all of us that are at home uh, right now, Father, we would have a chance to celebrate what it means to learn Christ and that you would open our hearts and our minds to a, a better way of thinking, to truly see his lordship played out in our lives, so that we, we can conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the calling we've received. Uh, so we thank you for that opportunity. Now use us, God. Use us in strong and mighty ways. We love you, Father, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.